Hey y'all, you're listening to Link in the Chain, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to reveal the depth and vastness of hip-hop one episode at a time. We take our favorite methodologies, albums, artists, and songs and strip them to their core, figuring out what exactly makes them so magnetic. I'm your host, Jillian Grace. Let's get started. I'm just doing what Pete did for me. Pete Brain did for me and what James Brown did for them. Still just a fan of forward. I just always look at it as a link in the chain, man. Like it's a link in the chain. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you know I am a sucker for a good antidote. I feel like coming on here every other week and just Diving into any given topic is impersonal and honestly a little boring. With this being the first season of Link, I want y'all to have an idea of who I am and why I'm so passionate about this work. But if I am completely honest, I was sort of dragging my feet when it came to writing the script for this week's topic. Weight, body image, and the conversation around fatness in general have been things that I have struggled with for as long as I can remember. I've looked at my friends and mentally compared our bodies more than I'd like to admit. I would go on water fast back in the day with every intention of finding a sense of centered spirituality, but also hoping that I'd shed a few pounds in the process. I even secretly find comfort in the, oh girl, you lost weight since moving to New York comments, which by the way, has everything to do with me being forced into public transportation and my piss poor diet. <laughs> Crash dieting, fasting, internalized fat phobia, these were things I knew like the back of my hand growing up. Fatness was and always has been the elephant in the room, no pun intended. I guess in some ways this too is an antidote, <laughs> but it is also an affirmation of sorts. Through this episode, I am allowing myself to be vulnerable and supple with my listeners. So this week's episode is about fat black women and black music and the monitoring of their bodies. Before we jump in, if you like what you hear in this episode, please, please, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on IG, or just interact in general. This week's episode is our halfway mark of the season, and I'm already thinking of new ways to show up for y'all in season two. Like I've said in the past, Link is a team of one, so all constructive feedback is appreciated and not taken for granted. Okay, I think I've got out of the way all of the church announcements. (laughs) Y'all ready? Let's get it. Let's get it, get it, get it right. Hey, 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 hey. All right, let's do it, y'all. I've been waiting for this one. Turn it up. Slow songs, they for skinny hoes. Can't move all of this here to one of those. I'm a thick bitch, I need tempo. tempo. Fuck it up to the tempo. Pity pat, pity pat, pity, pity pat. pat. Look at my ass, it's fitty, fitty fat. Pat. Kitty cat, kitty cat, kitty, kitty cat. Pour me a glass, boy, I like my water wet. Pat. Although she's been in the game since 2010, Melissa Vivian Jefferson, also known as Lizzo, didn't come into her fame full force until 2019. 
It was that year where her 2017 single, Truth Hurts, started making noise, spending seven weeks at number one on the Billboard 100, the longest reign for a rap song by a female artist. 2019 was also the year she released her third album, Cause I Love You, a record that has won her countless awards and accolades alike. Since then, Lizzo has made sure to make her mark on the industry. She's a performance performer. <laughs> she sings, gives full choreography. She is really nothing for Lizzo to take her flute out and start playing mid-song. It's evident that she puts in the time and makes sure that everything she does is done with intention and with the hopes of creating a lasting impression on her audience. But with great talent also comes great criticism. No matter what she does or how she shows up, Lizzo's weight is always at the forefront. One step further, Lizzo is always reprimanded for how she represents herself and how she chooses to show up in the world. Whether it's what she chooses to wear at a basketball game, to what food she consumes, or her just having fun and twerking on the internet, Lizzo is never allowed to just be. She is not given the same space to express her sexuality in the way that her thinner rap colleagues are allowed to. On August 13th, Lizzo released visuals for her new single, Rumors, featuring Cardi B. The video shows both women in all of their feminine glory, dressed as Greek goddesses looking like something straight out of Hercules. In the song, Lizzo addresses the rumors she's been hit with since being in the limelight. Everything from how she's turning big girls into hoes, to how she hasn't slept with Drake yet, which, girl, come here. Is there a list? How do I sign up? How do, how do I sleep with Drake? I, too, would like to sleep with Aubrey. <laughs> After the release of this record, though, like clockwork, Lizzo received backlash. Backlash for the video, backlash for the song itself, backlash for not being quote-unquote black enough. She was even referred to as a mammy, putting a show on for her white listeners. Lizzo and the fat phobia she faces is not new. She is a product of a long, gruesome history that stretches back to the 18th century. In an interview with Maddie Sophia, author Sabrina Strings talks about its origins, how during the Renaissance era, white, full-figured women were highly valued within society. During the slave trade, though, slave owners noticed something about their captives that changed their outlook. Here is a snippet of that interview. It's a bit lengthy, but I really think it's important for this conversation that we're going to have. So it turns out that the growth of the slave mm -hmm. trade, especially by the 18th century, led to new articulations yeah. of what types of appearance we could expect of people by different races and also what types of behaviors such that by the middle of the 18th century, a lot of French philosophers in particular were arguing that, you know yeah. what? When we're in the colonies, we're noticing that Africans are sensuous. They love sex and they love food. And for this reason, they tend to be too fat. Europeans, we have mm -hmm. rational self-control. This is what makes us the premier uh, race of the world. So in terms of body size, we should be slender and we should watch what we eat. So, okay, Sabrina, are you telling me that when the slave trade started and Europeans saw that African women were essentially curvy, much like European women at the time, at that point, they decided that being fat, being thicker, wasn't ideal anymore. And then they built a system of oppression around this idea of needing to be thin to prove racial superiority. Is, is that it? Am I, am I close? 
It's not quite as intentional as that. Mm. Um, effectively, what they determined was that um, you know we wanted to be able to have a mechanism for ensuring that we could recognize who was slave and who was free, right? And it was easy in the beginning of the slave mm. trade. It was simply mm. skin color. But as you might imagine, after 200 right. years of living in close proximity, skin color really no longer works as a mechanism, right? Because now we have all of these people who are, yeah. uh, we would consider them today to be biracial. And so what they did was they decided to articulate new aspects of racial identity. And so eating right. and body size became two of the characteristics that were being used to suggest that these are people who do not deserve freedom. This is only the beginning of how thinness and its proximity to whiteness and quote-unquote purity has damaged the Black community. While researching for this episode, I couldn't help but think about the Black community's relationship with food and the ways that white supremacy has affected it. I think about the food deserts that are in hoods across the country, making it damn near impossible for people to have access to good and affordable produce. Or about the soda tax, something that Mickey Kendall touches on in her book, Hood Feminist, Notes from the Women That the Movement Forgot. In short, the soda tax is just what its name says, a tax on carbonated drinks to discourage folks from buying it. This sounds like a great idea until you realize that pop has a longer shelf life and in often cases is much cheaper than juice. Mickey also talks about how, while these policies seem to be well-meaning, they don't actually solve anything, saying that politicians use fat phobia and obesity as a scapegoat to deflect attention away from the policies that have adversely affected the health of low-income communities. To be clear, this is not me saying or implying that Lizzo or folks like her are a product of poverty. But what I am saying is that the same people who often ridicule and fat shame others are also the ones who uphold a system that makes it impossible to access healthy living. In an article she wrote for Refinery21, journalist Brooke Obi said the following, we must connect the dots between fat phobia, massage noir, and transphobia because they are fruit of the same poisonous tree. When we participate in the perpetuation of these oppressions by demeaning and endangering the lives of fat people, queer people, sexual women, and all those who sit at these intersections, we're acquiescing to the myth that the closer we get to achieving white supremacist ideals, the better our chances are of attaining safety and freedom. But there is no safety or freedom under white supremacy. In other words, this too is a link in the chain. Because of her way, Lizzo's relationship with her body and how she chooses to show up as a sexual being is also put under scrutiny. But as you know by now, as a listener of this show, you know that she was not the first sexual fat black woman and certainly will not be the last. Case in point, Lucille Bogan. For those of y'all who don't know, I work in a record store, and it's cool because I'm put on to the music of artists I don't think I'd normally come across, one of those artists being Miss Bogan. Lucille Bogan, born Lucille Anderson, is considered to be the predecessor of blues singer Muddy Waters. In June 1923, Lucille recorded a record for OK Records, becoming the first vocalist, male or female, to record with a large label in the South. On her debut project, Lucille is soft and timid being referred to as having an immature voice and lacking assurance. However, a few years later in 1933, ARC label reps discovered her singing in a Birmingham brothel. She was given an opportunity to record again, but under a new stage name, Bessie Jackson. The switch in name also shifted something in Lucille's approach to music. 
Her voice was no longer immature, nor was her sound lacking assurance. Most importantly, her lyrics were graphic. Here's a snippet of one of my personal favorites from her, Till the Cows Come Home. I got a big fat belly, I got a big broad ace, and I can fuck any man with real good plays. Talking about fucking, talking about grinding, baby, all night long. And I can do it to you, honey, until the cow come home. If you suck my pussy, baby, I'll suck your dick. Lucille was not playing with (laughs) y'all. She sang about her multiple lovers, sex work, and how she liked her sex, all while having a quote-unquote big fat belly. She was a woman who didn't allow society to confine her or her sexuality, and it worked. As I said earlier, if it wasn't for her, folks like Muddy Waters wouldn't have been able to follow in her footsteps. Additionally, Lucille is a member of a class of dirty blues singers. Folks like Memphis Minnie, Ma Rainey, and even Bessie Smith all had explicit lyrics. This fat black woman cemented her place in history by simply being herself. Another woman worth mentioning? She's your fave's fave, okay? An icon, force, and coincidentally, also named Melissa. Melissa Arnett Elliott has proven to be the blueprint time and time again. She has written and produced for everyone from Aaliyah to Beyonce to Monica to Mary J. Blige. Literally, you name an artist and I guarantee you Missy has written a song for them. In 2001, she produced a rework of Patti LaBelle's Lady Marmalade. She's a Grammy winner and an honorary doctorate holder from Berklee College of Music. From 1998 to 2008, she won every ASCAP Rhythm and Soul Award that she was nominated for. Most recently, she won the Michael Jackson MTV Video Vanguard Award in 2019 for constantly breaking barriers with her visuals. One of Missy's most iconic videos was born out of her stance against the fat phobia and colorism she received within the music industry. I originally heard this story on the podcast, No Skips, hosted by Shay Serrano and Brandon Jinx Jenkins, and it immediately made me love her even more. On April 15, 1993, an 8-year-old Raven Simone released her debut single entitled, That's What Little Girls Are Made Of. Raven's rap was written by Missy, and the song also included a verse rap by Missy herself. When it was time to shoot the video though, Missy was replaced by a thin, light-skinned woman lip-syncing her verse. She revealed on her Behind the Music episode that she wasn't aware of this change and that she didn't fit the image that the directors were looking for. But instead of allowing this to discourage her out of her calling, Missy used it as ammunition. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly.
Sylvia Rohn reached out to Missy and signed her to Electra Records. In short, Sylvia gave Missy free reign to do and show up authentically as herself. That same year, Missy released her debut single, Super Duper Fly, which samples Ann Peebles' song, I Can't Stand the Rain. The song is incredible, but what makes it even better is the Hype Williams directed video that accompanies it. It features it all, okay? Cameos from the likes of Lil' Kim, Timbaland, and 702. A group of dancers dancing on stage in the rain, (laughs) wearing Tims, which, what? (laughs) And it also includes the iconic Wrangler that accompanies the beat, beat, who got the keys to the Jeep, (laughs) hey? But the real star of the show, Missy, directly in front of a fisheye lens, wearing a blown up garbage bag. She maximizes every characteristic and feature that she was previously told wasn't acceptable. Even the chorus of the song, Me I'm Super Fly, Super Duper Fly, ends up becoming an affirmation of sorts. Missy is also no stranger to her sexuality being stripped away from her. Those who aren't familiar with her work saw the famous Adidas tracksuits that she wore and automatically labeled her as one of the guys and a female rapper to be pitted against her colleagues. But Missy is nowhere near shy nor timid when it comes to her sexuality or what she wants from a partner. So much so that she wrote a song about it. Her certified platinum third album, Miss E, So Addictive, features the iconic song Get Your Freak On, but also features another banger featuring Ludacris titled One Minute Man. Ooh, I don't want, I don't need, I can't stand no minute man. I don't want no minute man. The intention of this episode is not to turn you into a Lizzo fan. It's not even to convert you into a fan of Missy, which is crazy if you're not, but go off. (laughs) The purpose of talking about this is to remind you all that fat black women have always been a part of the landscape and not just in one format or in one way. Whether they decide to wear an oversized hefty bag or literally nothing at all, black Fat women deserve the space to show up however they desire. If their counterparts are allowed to twerk on the internet and have paid partnerships with large fast food corporations, then they should be allowed to do the same without backlash. Time is out for the playing fields to be anything but leveled. So yeah, that is this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you like what you heard, please like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, a tell a friend, a tell a friend, a tell a hoe. <laughs> tell everybody you know about this podcast. It would mean a lot. This little community is slowly but surely growing and I am just so overjoyed and so grateful for what you all have done to grow this community thus far. 
Um, also say a little prayer for me. <laughs> Classes start next week and mentally I'm in Dubai. <laughs> Girl, I'm, I do not. Just give me my degree already. But yes, thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Thanks again for tuning into Link in the Chain. The theme song was produced by Hype Alexander. All research, producing, and recording was done by myself, Jillian Grace. If you like what you heard in this episode, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to this show. Thanks again. See y'all in two weeks. <laughs>